I could, would be called making your life a punctuation mark. I'll try to explain that to you momentarily. Do you know there are 16 punctuation marks in the English language? I'd venture to say no one here could name all 16 of them. But I'm going to do it because I have them here in my notes. The period, the question mark, the exclamation point, the comma. You all knew that, didn't you? The, co- the semicolon, the colon, the em dash, the end dash, the hyphen, the parentheses, the brackets, the braces, the apostrophe, the double quotation mark, the single quotation mark, and the ellipsis. None of them are as scary as they sound. If you were this morning to look, and you probably have not, at a comma, you would know that it's meant to do a certain thing. You might say, hey, Mark, comma, how are you? It's to break up, (laughs) thank you, it's to break up a thought. And we all know what a period is for. It's to, to end a statement. Eric went and walked his dog, period. A question mark is really a, a sentence with a question. It's called an interrogative sentence. I don't know if you remember that from grammar, but that's what it is. And a question mark is there to ask a question or to get information. Do you know what the weather will be today? And, of course, an exclamation point is meant to make a point. Hey, Mark, how are you? There you are. I want to stop and ask you to consider your life that way for a minute. Consider your life as some sort of punctuation mark. Because I want to go back to Good Friday. You remember we had Good Friday service here, and Travis preached that night, and he talked about what Jesus went through the night that he died. For many, when they saw Jesus die on that cross, Jesus' life that night became a punctuation mark, and it was a period. No one looked at Jesus' life and thought, well, there's a question mark. You know, is he going to die or not? I mean, it was pretty clear he was dead. That's why everybody left. That's why everybody ran. That's why he was placed in the tomb. You might not even be able to say that Jesus' life was an exclamation point. Because the way it ended was pretty much a period. The only time the question mark comes along is when those women first arrive at the tomb. And when the women first arrive at the tomb, there is a question mark. The stone's been rolled away. An angel speaks to Mary, but but the, the gospel writers have separated that out. When Peter and John get there, they just find that it's empty. And even for these gentlemen on the Emmaus Road, it's a period. There is no question mark. It's over. They even expressed that to Jesus as they walked. You know, are you the only person in Jerusalem that hasn't heard what happened? We were counting on this guy. He was going to be the one that delivered us. He was going to be it. But they couldn't. When people die, that is the end of it all. It wasn't until that first appearance of Jesus to individuals, you know, the way that some said it, they saw the women, then somehow Peter got a glimpse, because that's told to us, 
and then all the disciples in that room, and finally Thomas, you know, sticking his hand in there and feeling it and seeing that it's real. Only then does Jesus' life become an exclamation point. And you and I, you've all heard it, most of you have heard it anyhow, this little poem or this phrase about the gash, the gash on your tombstone, you know, between the, the period of time between when you were born and the time that you die, that that is your gash. I want to submit to you today that I think that gash needs to be broken up a little bit. And Peter is going to tell us why. Look, if you would, at this first verse we read this morning. If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. What Peter is saying here is this. If you call yourself a Christian, but you don't live like it, look out. God's not only the Father, He is the judge. And when you call yourself a Christian, when you say that you are a justified person, that Jesus has done His work in you, that you've been changed by the grace of God, that should be reflected in how you live. The evidence of God's grace in your own life as a Christian is that you live differently. That's the reason Paul wrote in Ephesians 2. And listen close to this because it's important. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared before that we should walk in them. So here in this passage, if you look, you'll notice that it says that we call on him as the father who judges. We all get nervous, don't we, when we talk about the judgment. We get real uneasy about that. But the judgment that Peter's writing about here it really doesn't involve anybody but the people Peter's addressing. There is the great white throne judgment, but there's something else here going on. It's known as the judgment seat of Christ, and that's what Peter is talking about. And he's basically saying that the saved, the Christians, will have their lives evaluated by God. If, if God has created us, like Paul said, as his workmanship in Christ Jesus to do good things, that God prepared for us beforehand, we may take a look to see just how that's worked out. In Romans chapter 14, the 10th to the 12th verses, look at what this says. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue will confess to God. So each of us will give an account of himself or herself to God. And in another place, Paul said, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But the difference for Christians is that we can't be condemned. And you say, oh, hold on, Joel, you're saying can't? You're telling God what he can do? I'm just telling you what God's already said. In Romans 8, 1, it says this, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, I would submit to you, that Jesus is pushing for us to do our very best. He is wanting to see us do those works he's created for us beforehand, the right way, the good way, a powerful witness for him. Paul would go on to say in another place, Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, the one who was risen, is at the right hand of God ever interceding for us. Understand, Jesus is praying for us to do the good things. He's praying for his church, for the believers, for the saved, 
to do a right response to what he's done for us. Can I tell you something? Life is very short. That gas we talk about is very short. But I want to tell you, it gets even shorter when you consider that part of that life is spent without faith in Jesus. You see, that gas is kind of broken up, isn't it? It's broken up by the, the time that we live without Christ and the time that we live with him. And I don't know that the whole gas matters as much as what God's going to look at for that half that comes after we chose to follow him. The next verse. Remember, Peter has now said this. He said, if you call on him as, if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And here in this verse, he says, knowing this, that you were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, with perishable things such as silver or gold. You were ransomed, he said. So live that way. Live like you know the price that's been paid for you. We live as Christians with the knowledge of the price Jesus paid. That Good Friday and what he went through on the cross, we are aware of the price he paid to win our salvation. And Peter goes on but with the precious blood. You weren't, you weren't redeemed with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. That lamb that they, they killed and put the blood above the doorpost and they were to eat it without breaking any of its bones. Remember, Jesus had no bones broken upon the cross. We are people who were purchased by God's one and only sacrificial lamb, the perfect lamb without spot, his son, his only son. And then Peter says, who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. I want to be sure that you understand that word foreknown for a minute. Just as I read you Ephesians 2.10 a minute ago, and it says that there were works created for us to do, that foreknown has to do with Jesus, but it has to do with his purpose. It's not just that there was knowledge of what he was going to do. Yeah, all the way back before the earth was created, it was known that Jesus was going to sacrifice himself on a cross for the created beings called you and I. But more than that, he knew that. He intended to do that. His purpose was to do that. This plan didn't get concocted because we were in a jam. This was the plan because he knew we'd be in a jam. And this plan, Peter tells us, has been revealed in Christ Jesus. The 21st verse, through him, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Do you ever think about the fact that your faith in God comes through the work of Jesus? Do you ever think about the fact that our faith in him comes from the work that he did on the cross? Not by anything we've done. Let's do both. We're saved by grace. It's a gift of God. He gives it to us freely, and he chose to do it before we were ever even born. So what is this judgment that Peter's talking about here? It really doesn't have to do with our salvation. It has to do with that second half of the gas. 
It has to do with the time frame from when we came to faith in Christ to the time that we leave this earth, be that by death or by his return. I love the fact that when you become a Christian, Jesus forgives your sins. Colossians 2.13 says this, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. Peter, in the next chapter, would simply say this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Not long ago, That wonderful doggie of mine, who we were praying to stay off the counter, while we were gone, got on the counter. And there were some treats there, and he enjoyed them to the fullest. He was happy. But when I walked in the door, the dog that usually greets me with a wagging tail and jumping up and all that stuff just kind of went over to the wall and looked at me wrong with him and then in the, I went in the kitchen and I found him I found the dirty deed he had gotten up there and eaten those muffins not only that he left a few holes and I didn't know if he licked them or not so they were no good anyway when Jesus died on the cross read that read that verse for yourself he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we can live to righteousness and by his wounds we are healed. Our sins have already been judged. The judgment that Peter's talking about doesn't have to do with what we've done wrong. Jesus bore that on the cross of Calvary. Hebrews would write and say this, and I'm going to read this to you, it's Hebrews 10, 10 to 18. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. Every priest stands daily to do his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God and waited from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Stop right there and understand what that says. When Jesus died on the cross, he was the final and sufficient sacrifice for sin. Our sin was punished. It was taken care of. God bore it on the cross. And we are now his. And it's perfected in the work that he did there. For all time, the Holy Spirit bears witness to us saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, declares the Lord. I'll put my law on their heart and write it on their mind. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of sin, there is no longer any offering for sin. This judgment Peter's talking about, it's not about what we've done wrong. It's not about the sin before we knew Jesus. The judgment that Peter's talking about is what we've done with what he's done for us after we came to know him.
Paul would come along and ask this question. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? We'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. What Paul's saying there is, is that, yeah, we will stand before the judgment seat, but not for the negative, not for the fire and the brimstone. We'll stand there, and when he looks at us, he'll see his son, Jesus. And the question will be, what did you do with what Jesus did for you? Paul would say this, whether we're at home or away, we should make it our aim to please him. Did you hear that? For we must all appear before the judgment seat so that each one may receive what's due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Do you know that um, our time here is short? I don't think we're supposed to live our life here in fear of God. Should we respect him? You better believe it. Not in fear of some judgment but rather a, a right loving reverence for that God who has died for us. We should learn how to live our life for him, not necessarily just for ourselves. What does Peter say? Let me read it to you one more time. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Peter in this passage tells us two things. The way we were and the way Christ is. What's the way we were? We were ransomed. You know that when Peter wrote this in first century Rome, there was probably something like 60 million slaves in Rome. Stop and think about that for a minute. 60 million slaves first century many of them became christians but they were still slaves they still had to face the problems they had before some of them became involved in local gatherings of believers in house churches probably sometimes a slave could work himself out of his slavery he could actually earn extra enough to to redeem himself out of that but it didn't happen often Sometimes the local believers would figure out a way to have a slave. But again, that didn't happen all that often. And here in this passage where, where Peter says, know that you were ransomed from the futile ways, from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, he's talking about the slavery that you and I were born into. Slaves to sin. Most of you here know that I've got two addictions. Both of them are here on the table with me this morning. Coffee and Diet Pepsi. My lovely wife said to me on Thursday, I quit drinking coffee, I just drink hot water now. Don't tell her I said this, but I thought, <laughs> hot water, yeah. <laughs> but I got up on Friday morning, and I made a cup of decaf. All day Friday, I had a headache. 
slept, wanted to nap, was in the grocery store, wanted to climb up on a shelf and take a nap. Everything people said to me made me angry. You, you know how that goes when you're going through the coffee withdrawal. I thought, man, Saturday's got to be better. So I got up Saturday and made myself a cup of decaf. And it wasn't much better. <laughs> the day I got up, I made a cup of decaf and I drank half of it and dumped it out. And I got my high test back. <laughs> Just for you. <laughs> but it's kind of like how we live our lives. We can be so deceived into believing that what this world offers us makes us full, it makes us happy. It's like caffeinated coffee. But we don't realize how miserable it's going to make us in the end, right? Once we get so used to it and so stuck in it, I love sweet tea, but please don't make it with saccharin. It just has an aftertaste that's terrible. Paul is trying to tell us, before we were living our lives as a false substitute for what really was going to be fulfilling. That sin and everything that we worshipped and everything that we loved and everything that we wanted in our life that we thought was right and we pursued and it never really, really filled the donut hole in the middle of our heart. It tricked us. That's the way we were. But Paul now is going to say this. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You know why Christ shed his blood to save us from the way we were? Because he saw us and knew that we were unable to do it ourselves, much like a slave in Rome who could not raise enough money to redeem themselves. Jesus knew that the only thing that could pay for our sins was his precious blood. Like a Passover lamb, he took our place. He became a substitutionary atonement. He became an innocent victim, giving life to the guilty. You can go all throughout your Bible and you will see a doctrine called sacrifice. You will see that, you know, God made clothing for Adam and Eve from a sacrifice. When Abraham took Isaac up that hill, he was going up to offer his son as a sacrifice, and God provided a sacrifice. In the Exodus, when they needed a sacrifice, God said, get a lamb without blemish, kill it, don't break its bones, and you got to eat all of it. But when Jesus comes along, the writer of Hebrews tells us that he was the final and sufficient sacrifice for sins. If a lot of people would look at what Jesus did on the cross and see it as perhaps an accident, it wasn't an accident. It was an appointment. It was a place from before the foundation of the world, before the, the dust was, was formed into a human, he had an appointment with that cross. In the book of Acts, Peter would stand up when he preached his sermon and he would say this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed 
at the hand of lawless men. You see what that says right there? The definite plan. Remember foreknowledge, the purpose of God. It was God's idea. Why would any God sacrifice his one and only son that way? Why would any person like Jesus sacrifice himself that way? And it's a very simple word. Love. He loves us. And we, when we become Christians, we are called to live for him. Why? Because we love him as a response to what he's done for us. And that brings me to my bottom line today. And it's this simple. Our life should be Christ's exclamation point. Can I tell you that I can't imagine anything greater than Easter Sunday morning. Can you imagine those women running to the grave or getting to the grave and finding that the tomb is empty? And they leave and, and one lingers. And this angel says, he's not here, the one that you're seeking. But he's risen just as he said. Go and tell his disciples that Jesus Christ is alive. What a great story. And then Peter and John show up, you know, and they get in there and they find out that the tomb is empty, but they're not sure what happened. And we know they're not sure because they hide themselves into an upper room that night. Remember when Thomas isn't there. And then Jesus comes and is amongst them. What an exclamation point. He's alive. But couched in that afternoon is this little event of these two men on the Emmaus Road. And as they're walking, Jesus comes up and walks alongside him, them. And as he walks, they don't even recognize who he is. They have put a period on his life. He is dead and it is over. And as they walk, the whole time they're walking, Jesus is taking his hand and putting a comma mark on that period. The whole time they're walking, he's putting a comma. He's saying, it's not over, it's not over, and you don't see it. And the Bible says that they said to him when they stopped in a town to eat, to, to spend the night, don't go any further because it's getting dark and you're tired. Stay here with us. And Jesus agreed to do that. And they go into the house and somewhere along the way they get bread and they break it and they bless it. And for all that conversation on the road, the Bible says they knew him in the breaking of bread. I've always said I tend to believe that if Jesus took that loaf and broke it and handed it to them, they saw the nail prints in his hands. And at that moment, Jesus disappears and they came to faith in not just Jesus, but in the resurrection. And what they had called a period and what Jesus was trying to tell them was a comma suddenly became an exclamation point. He's alive. And church, what about you? I do think the greatest thing ever is the resurrection of Jesus. But I can tell you I see a whole lot more hope, as much hope, in a life that's been transformed to do good for his kingdom. Not <laughs> because here's what many of us have done. We have accepted Christ in our lives. And man, we've gone to a Bible study and we have gone to some seminar or some weekend getaway or whatever it might be. Pardon me if you were at one recently. That wasn't for you. <laughs> but at the end of the day, there's nothing going on there really, and we've made our life a period. Or maybe 
we've jumped in full and wholehearted and got a little weary, didn't like the way things were going. Can you imagine that? And so we put that comma out there and said, well, we'll just pause for now. The Bible says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But two or three did those works he prepared for us before the foundation of the world. And our life, once we meet Jesus, should not be a period or a comma. It should build on his exclamation point to stop the message even louder. Amen.